Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. You could be forgiven for thinking that curiosity gets pretty short shrift in our culture today. Our guest today, Sarah Devonzo, VP of Customer and Market Insights and Foresights at L'Oreal, is also referred to as the Chief Curiosity Officer. She takes exploration and curiosity extremely seriously and has applied data science and analytics to the field in an unprecedented way. On top of that, she's an extremely interesting person to talk to. So without any further ado, let's dig in. Welcome, everybody, to the Masters of Data podcast, and I'm excited this morning to have with me Sarah Devonzo, and she's a Chief Curiosity Officer at L'Oreal. Thanks for coming on, Sarah. Hey, Good morning. Tell us a little bit what a Chief Curiosity Officer is, just to start off with, because, by the way, I think that's a fantastic title. So <laughs> what does that actually mean day to day? Well, it's AKA Chief Curiosity Officer. I'm, I'm actually Vice President of Consumer and Market Insights and Futurism, or Foresight. And I'm referred to as a chief curiosity officer internally because my job is to basically ask questions and to promote intellectual exploration, experimentation, physical exploration, and even visual exploration in service of innovation. That sounds like a very fun job. <laughs> very fun. What I always really start with is, is talking about people's backgrounds. So let's talk a little bit about how you got there. I mean, looking a little bit in your background, it sounds like you've had a You've had a pretty interesting life so far. So, I mean, how do, how do you get to being uh, where you were at in the curiosity and foresight business? You know that expression, been around the block, right? Well, I've been around the world. Yeah. <laughs> so, I guess yeah. exponentially, a couple of times, actually. It's uh, a trajectory that actually took me to 22 countries. I recently counted up the countries I worked in and about 20 years abroad which I'd say was probably instigated by, you know, being fortunate enough to, at the university level, going on that semester at sea program you might have heard about. I was so enthralled by culture and wanted to work abroad. And so that's where my career took me. And it's always been in these countries, some kind of intersection, like a superfecta of, of work somewhere between innovation, marketing, branding, insights and trends. So it's always been those kind of four areas, working on agencies, consultancies, Fortune 500 companies, and then starting up my own businesses, a couple of businesses myself. So that brought me back to America after about 20 years of doing that, unfortunately, after a divorce. <laughs> so I was a little sad after a divorce and came back to New York, my hometown, and you know started to get thick into brand experience and the local or the U.S. trend and foresight world which led me to a couple of strategy roles, but then ultimately publicists leading the trends and culture division of publicists in the U.S. for a period of time. And that's when I read about Terry, Terry Young's uh, venture that he was wanting to start out on Sparks and Honey. And there was a great article in the New York Times. And I reached out to him and he was building the company and we hit it off fabulously. And it was all the right, perfect, like peanut butter and chocolate, you know, mixture. So that took me to Sparks and Honey for nearly four years, building the foundational cultural intelligence system. And then, uh, and then I left 18 months ago to actually branch out and go to join L'Oreal in the innovation function, disruptive innovation specifically, and do what I do there. When you and I, when we connected, we connected through Terry over at Sparks and Honey. And, and I, first of all, I mean, it's a fascinating company. And, you know, as you came, you were there as the chief cultural officer, right? Cultural strategy officer. Cultural strategy officer, thank you. Yeah. 
So what were you doing and what, were, what problem were you actually trying to solve at, at Sparks & Honey? So one of the big differentiators was and still is actually is being data driven and um, looking at data to quantify trends and to use it to predict trends and, and not just, you know, have trend forecasting being entirely qualitative. And in fact, that was some of my frustration in my career up to the point I had met Terry was in fact that I wanted to apply data science and analytics analytics. And I knew that algorithms could be built and we could collect the data that was coming from all the, you know, whether it's a click stream or whether it would be web visitorship or behavioral sciences data, some sensors or, or whether it was a CRM data, all that was coming into play in the marketing and advertising world. And, you know, I thought, hey, this stuff needs to be leveraged in a much more thoughtful way. So, what I was trying to solve by joining the Sparks and Honey was really to create a data-driven cultural relevance machine and also to use data to future, you know, look at forecasting to help businesses future-proof. And you know, we can talk about this a little bit later, but also the idea that the futurism world and certainly the data world don't have a lot of women and female voices or female gazes. And I wanted to be a voice in that space and attract women and experiment and, you know, represent the female viewpoint of what the future could be. Well, and, and definitely when I went and, and visited, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating place that you guys built over there. And so you, you left that and went to L'Oreal. And, and why did you make that change? Sure. So, you know, it's getting on to four years of consulting. And I've, as I said, I've been on different sides of the business, you know, agencies, consultancies at the client and then my own business. And one of the opportunities that I saw with L'Oreal, which is a fabulous company with a gigantic global footprint. So, you know, you can make huge impact, right? If, <laughs> if I'm able to move the needle there, right, was actually seeing the innovation through fruition from idea to actually, you know, in the market. And I think in other roles I've had in the innovation space and consulting space, there's only so much that the client will let you allow you into <laughs> their world. And I think, you know, I get a great sense of satisfaction of building and also especially working with the scientists, chemists, roboticists, digital scientists, the biologists. There's just oh, such a very heavy data-driven community and seeing whether or not we can use the best of my skills and combined with their skills and create something special. So I've been building the foresight and futurism capability within the organization, also experimenting with a lot of very cutting edge data collection and foresight and innovation methods. So it's been a really great experience. Well, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, you, it's all over stuff that you produce and on your, your LinkedIn, you talk about it now with foresight and futurism and Talk a little bit more about what that actually means, and particularly in the context you're using it. Sure. Everyone's heard of this. You know, it's the possible futures, it's the probable futures, it's the preferable futures. That's pretty standard stuff. But the reality is that what we want to do is have a greater sense in this VUCA, volatile, <laughs> uncertain, <laughs> complex, ambiguous world, right? We want to have a better sense with data of what the future scenarios will probably look like. And we can design for that so that we can anticipate that. When 
typically a lot of innovation, especially in design thinking innovation today, is focused on, you know, your ethnographies and, you know, consumer research, co-creation. Of course, we do all that stuff, but consumers really can only really talk about the past and the present. And so what we need is a special complement of consumers or co-creators, as well as data to really project out what could be a possibility of the future and what should be the possibility of the future and what could we design for that. So there's taking in very disparate data sets. So it might be triangulating CDC information about disease migration maps, social listening, cultural forensics, looking at pop culture and the trajectory of how we got to where we are today. Obviously, behavioral data, biometric data, shopping data that's very readily available. And then there's projective techniques where we would would conduct future-facing research. For example, it's very good in the futures world to look at analogs from other industries, especially material sciences. So looking at material innovations, looking at trends in art, design, and architecture is very important because usually the artistic community is on the zeitgeist intuitively of where culture is headed. Of course, we look at the defense industry. I particularly study defense technologies. Yes, no matter what sector, what category you're talking about. The, you know, DARPA as, as a leader for research, obviously, and science is important. Looking at university labs, having connections, that's often called open innovation in many places. And what you would do is, you know, you're, you're looking at startups, you're looking at meetups, you're looking at Kickstarters, you're looking at IPOs, all that information, of course, patents, So, by the way, that is literally just the tip of the iceberg of the kind of data that's analyzed to identify opportunities. So you can already get a sense of how overwhelming it can kind of be. So having tools and platforms and systems to parse that and analyze that and synthesize it and identify opportunities is, I think, what is going to be leading in the innovation space in the future and hopefully what we're doing. It was pretty fascinating, particularly when I think about you doing this at L'Oreal, I think I imagine on some level not necessarily that breadth of information. I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you. But think of it like an onion, right? The center of the onion is the today signals, right? All the little things are happening. And then, you know, one layer out is what I would call the the macro layer. And then the mega trends are the, the bigger trends. You've got three hierarchies of trends, micro, macro, and mega, of course. That's pretty standard stuff. But, you know, if you don't understand the mega dynamics of the world, if I don't, even doing an innovation for some kind of product that's a you know a beauty product that could be a makeup product, if you don't understand where households, what will be the living style, what will be the day-to-day behaviors, how will people commute? You know, are they all going to be on autonomous vehicles? Will there be other methods? You know, that all has implications for routines and habits and behaviors that could have implications with regard to obviously household products and beauty products and so forth. So we have to look at the bigger space and at the very minimum, at the very minimum, looking at science, technology, economics, the environment, politics, you know, legal system, regulation, and so forth. And of course, social, the social demographic shifts and things like that. So that's the foundation. Then within that, then you have a lot of mutable trends that are macro trends that could be transcendent across multiple markets, but maybe not global. And those will change over time. And those will be informed by the micro stuff, the signals that are happening every day. It does remind me when I was at Sparks and Honey talking to Terry, I, I was, I didn't expect the breadth of signals that they would talk about in their cultural briefing. 
you know, I, I was expecting something, you know, much more, when I think cultural, I think I was thinking of a much more narrow or banned they're looking at a pretty wide signal. It sounds like that's what you're doing too. And I mean, I think that's... Yeah, absolutely. I define the culture with a capital C. So it's really... A capital C. It's the, it's the, it's the environment that we're, we're in. So it's beyond not necessarily ethnicity or arts and culture it's, or pop culture. It's much broader than that. It's overwhelming. Data, we talk, you know, here, masters of data, but <laughs> I would hope to be a master of data, but it, it's because it's, you know, this is where the conversation about AI has got to come into play because I'm finding it even with, you know, large teams of data scientists at my disposal or, you know, whether it's in-house or, you know, outsourced, it's still just a sea of data that is all opportunity. <laughs> the sea is filled with opportunity, but it needs to be triangulated and layered to look for connections, correlations, causations, you know, white space, what's missing from the data. I always like to say, you know, looking for white space, you first have to know what the black space is. You got to figure out what you know. And then the part that you don't know is, is the part or the missing pieces of data can be the biggest opportunity at times. So that's a whole different methodology to try to find the holes. Well, you know, you definitely have to say that. I, I, I think the title Masters of Data is probably aspirational. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely be, seems to be a theme of modern times that we're washing data and you, you, you make that very real. Maybe it's an oxymoron. Maybe it's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm uh, slightly mastering data. I'm uh, just a little bit mastering data. You know, one thing that you, you mentioned when we talked before and, and you've, you've kind of alluded to it here was you know, this foresight industry, you mentioned it being, you know, male dominated and, you know, there's a lot of like different poles of thought. I mean, talk a little bit more about that. I mean, what's been your experience in operating in that industry? Sure. And, you know, if you go to a, like a foresight conference, like the World Future Society or something like, you know, Peter Diamandis is like Global Future 2045. I actually counted the women in the audience and it was 12%. So, you know, you can easily count the heads in the audience, <laughs> but you can also go back and get the data, which I've done as well. And you find, you know, for example, working with, there's a trend forecasting crowdsourcing platform called Almanis. And I, you know, asked them some time ago to calculate how many women were on it. Only 20% of, of the users were female at the time. And then you triangulate that with other data source. I can go on and on and on. I've got a whole presentation on this. But the point is like, for example, the New York Times comment section for the, I'm sorry, not, not New York Times, the New York Post. The New York Post, 54% of the readers are male, yet they represent 75% of the comments. So there's a couple of studies out there that show that, you know, the female voice is often over I'm not going to say suppressed because I don't know if that's the point. I think it's just outspoken that there's a more of a domination of a male voice in a lot of platforms around commenting about projection and about futurism. What does that mean? That means a world of you know 50-50 cats and dogs, but then the dogs, let's say, or the men have a much larger proportionate say in how to design the world of the future. And, you know, so all of a sudden they're building dog runs and, you know, <laughs> dog parks and making dog food as opposed to representing maybe the cats of, uh, you know, that, that are also populating half of the world. And so this became a concern, especially when I did this, I did like a little mind map some years ago, which is pretty extensive because it shows the influence of foresight. So foresight, people who do this kind of stuff, like what I do, who listens to them? Who cares? Okay. Well, first of all, if you publish white papers or you do trend reports or keynotes or that kind of thing, 
what the kind of industries that it influences is, first of all, you know, agencies, venture capital, absolutely venture capital, the investment community, this become the ideas in which the, you know, everyone garners around. And so these become themes, investment themes. Now that in turn also influences government, government policy, infrastructure. So all of a sudden you might say, okay, well, if you have not so many women in the foresight world, that doesn't make a difference, but it might because ultimately at the end of the day, it's the stuff that's being built and the stuff that's being imagined, you know, whether it's the future city design or whether it's policies for work environments or whatever, that's all coming out of upstream. So, you know, if you look at this kind of this flow of activity of influences, I use this often to onboard, you know, new employees to say, take your job very seriously, (laughs) because this is your data (laughs) is going to influence potentially, you know, not only innovations, but a much larger possible future. And so I think attracting women to the sector is important. But then beyond that, there's so many biases just in the world, but in foresight, you know, it's very liberal. I think there's a statistic that's something to the effect of like there's only 9% of or 9 to 15% of of the community is actually conservative. There's a couple of numbers there. I mean, academia is like that, as you know. It's very liberal, so you're not getting conservative viewpoint. You have personality bias. You tend to have people like me who are outspoken who will be do public speaking. That's where the other half of the population, the introverts, right? We tend to have opportunity bias. That's a very big bias in terms of, yes, I went to university. In fact, I have several degrees. And yes, I'm very privileged when it comes to the rest of the world. When you look at the majority of the planet, not you know having access to resources and uh, technology and, and so forth. So right there, the you know the ivory tower that we sit in, you know, is our also coloring you know bias. You know, give you some examples of that. And so I think being aware of the biases, whether it's gender or opportunity or culture. You know, we're talking in English right now, and the English language comparatively, I've compared it to other languages in terms of projective thinking. And the English language is very linear, whereas other languages, say, for example, German, where you might have the subject in a different place in the sentence structure, it actually changes the way people think about the future. And so that's also a bias. And of course, then, of course, we have the bubble, the algorithm bubble and so forth. So half the battle is just knowing, being aware of the biases or the tropes that we fall into and working to overcome them or offset them. And that makes absolutely sense because, you know, a lot of the other conversations I've had, this seems to be an ongoing theme is like recognizing the biases. And then how do you, particularly in your area, work against that? Is it by hiring a more diverse set of data scientists and, you know, other people on your team to to spread that out? I mean, how do you push back against those kind of biases in the work you're doing? I think there's multiple ways. First, of course, hiring a team. So, International diversity or ethnic diversity is super important to me and, and I think is, is important for innovation, period, diversity of viewpoints um, and perspective. But within that, also looking at personality type, looking at also their style of exploration. As you know, I do a lot of research in this field of curiosity or an exploration. And you know, there are four, four ways in which, four styles of curiosity, four different ways people explore the world. And I'll put it simplistically, they you know, see, feel, think, and do. I call them lookers, the seers. The feelers are the, the lickers. <laughs> I like the lickers. <laughs> the thinkers are the, the thinkers. And then the doers are the pokers, in my vernacular. So those are very four different types of way that people explore. And 
so especially if I imagine I'm building a data team or a research team or a foresight team or innovation team, all of the above, I want to make sure that I have a healthy mix of pokers and lickers and lookers and thinkers, right? Because that's they're going to explore the possibilities and the world and the data. Some will be visual and be looking at visual patterns, but also data visualization. Others will be intellectual, will be parsing it. Some will be collecting data through experimentation, right? So, and so forth. So I think I definitely employ, I try to suss out people with little, you know, tests and interview questions to try to get a healthy complement. Um, and also age is important to get age diversity and experience diversity. Not everyone has to go to university, Ivy League school. You know, that's important. But then in the research world, where we are now talking to humans all day long to try to identify patterns and trends and opportunities and innovations, it's super important to make sure that we're talking to the whole world and not just a bunch of people in New York City, right? Or, you know, flying into just Fort Wayne, Indiana and just talk to the people there. We need to get a sense of the zeitgeist and really be very, I would say, surgical. And we are in trying to make sure that we get a diverse viewpoints and bring people in for co-creation that come from different, all kinds of different backgrounds. So I think that's important. And so right there, it's, it's hiring and the people you work with. And then even teams, team building. I've used the four curiosity styles to build the brainstorm team, for example, because I, I can just pull people from the company or from externally, you know, to make sure that I've got, you know, lookers and lickers and pokers and thinkers. When you say that, I'm, I'm imagining the, uh, the job description that one of the ones you're hiring with is degree in data science, preferred looker or poker. Yeah, expert liquor, <laughs> I, I, I like the terminology. <laughs> yeah, right. I think when you and I had mentioned it before too, I think you use a you know expression like a, a, a polymath is that you're you're looking for people that can explore in different ways and 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 like to be broad. Is is that right? Yeah. Well, have I ever talked to you about the curiosity deficit in America? <laughs> no, please, please. <laughs> Get bandwidth <laughs> deficit or <laughs> fiscal deficit. I'm going to answer your question, but I want to just preface it with some startling research over and over is corroborating. As I said, all these different data inputs, I'm looking at language as a window to culture. I mean, typically what we talk about and we the language we use often reflects what we're thinking about. I mean, it's, it's a very classic assumption. So looking at what we talk about and the words we use and the, what words are in fashion and go out of fashion. And then, of course, looking at other behaviors and, of course, doing primary research. And I'll tell you about that in a second, a piece of research that corroborates this point, which is, unfortunately, for 200 years, in the English language, in the United States, curiosity has been on a massive decline, 95% complete decline, in terms of behaviors and use of language. But it's interestingly, at the inflection point, there was something that actually took over, which was the concept of innovation. So the use of words around innovation and behaviors around innovation explosively took off, exponentially took off, where as curiosity you know, exponentially fell dramatically somewhere in the 1970s. But the data suggests that clearly technology, clearly the, you know, the reliance on, on technology, computers, and then ultimately cell phones and so forth, computation, and even technological distraction like TVs and various other you know, devices and things like that seems to be connected to this. You know, you could say, you know, people are overwhelmed with data and therefore, you know, fight or flight and a lot of people withdraw. So curiosity wink when you've got, you know, you've heard of the you know, paradox of choice, right? So 
I've been studying this decline of curiosity, and then I wanted to actually see if my hypothesis was correct. So I contacted a, a data science company that I had come across after doing some work with DARPA, this fabulous, interesting company that looks at emotion and the basically the emotional intention behind what people say and ultimately what they do, but really what they say. And it's called Heartbeat AI. Check it out. And so I've collaborated with that company a couple of times on some research. And this was a particular study where we took over 2,000 Americans nationwide, you know, a demographically absolutely representative of the nation, all those aspects of diversity I told you about earlier. And what we did was we surveyed them, directly asked a bunch of questions, direct and indirectly, to get at what are they passionately curious about? What's their passionate curiosity? And unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, 36% of Americans are passionately curious about nothing, nothing, not one thing. And when you read the qualitative, you know, I'm looking through all the data, you know, the concept of meh kept coming up or I don't care or I don't know, you know, I'll go this. And that triggered something, I, you know, that while we have fervent fighting and discourse on television and in the media, as a cultural strategist, as someone who reads the pulse of humans and looks at day to day and all day long, I don't see that in their behaviors. And in fact, I then went out and surveyed a whole ton of colleagues who are consumer researchers and teachers at various different levels of school, whether it was elementary, high school, or graduates, you know, at the, at the university level. And everybody corroborated that the students or the humans that are being studied or are in their circles are absolutely noticeable in the past 10 to 12 years, a massive decline in inventiveness and exploration. And so I call this the curiosity deficit because I think, A, well, it's literally the, the data suggests that the chart in favor of innovation, but you know, this is a problem, especially if we have you know, wicked problems to solve. I would think we'd want to have our best to figure out how to get off the planet with the Kessler effect of smashing satellite debris. You know, we've got all kinds of really, really existential problems, which is what you call in foresight world of like the problems that threaten the existence of humanity, existential problems. And yeah. so I'm concerned that our ability to problem solve and our way out of some of these problems are going to be thwarted by the fact that we have our growing incuriousness in, in, in society and especially our youngin. <laughs> well, it's interesting, you know, particularly, I, I don't think I, I told you this before, but I have two younger kids, a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. When you've looked at this, have you thought, what, what do we do with these younger kids to, because in some sense, it seems like keeping their curiosity going because at least you know i i know with my kids when they're very small they they're born curious and it seems like we we on some level we beat the curious out of them you know over over time how do we you know encourage them to keep that curiosity going into their 20s and 30s there has to be parental intervention <laughs> because certainly the school system with our common core and the way that our standardized testing works it's not rewarding exploration. And let's, let's, let's replace the word curiosity with exploration, because I think sometimes that can be easier for people to grasp, because curiosity is not, as I pointed out, just asking questions. It's exploring 
the world, it's exploring the world, and you know, by as I said, looking and licking and thinking and poking. And I think you know, there's also a lot of premium placed on asking questions in the school environment, and yet we can explore in so many other ways. Just like we, there are seven learning styles, so I think the parents will have to take it into their own hands to help their children, coach them, and encourage them to explore in the, all its messiness you know, to experiment and DIY and to ask hypothetical questions and to, you know, push their palates, just simply pushing the food choices and the sensory stimulation and helping them to understand that, you know, playing the pattern games. There's coaching that can be done and probably has to be done because I don't know where the children were going to get these skills if they're not getting it from their school environment. There's a little hope because I think, I think that millennial parents you know, I study generations a lot and look at the data between Gen Z and Gen Y, and there's big, stark differences, right? There are like vast differences in those two generations. And pretty much because Gen Z doesn't want to do anything the millennials did. So, you know, the younger siblings are rejecting a lot of those choices and are going the extreme opposite, like disconnecting, you know, from in terms of data, you know, turning off their geolocation and getting off of Facebook and social media. There's a, there's a, like a return to analog and a lot of traditional values. And I think millennial parents, many of them are concerned about the data collection, lack of privacy, and a lot of the negative aspects that go with devices and technology and data and are purposely trying to, they call them like develop free range children, helping the kids roam around and explore. And that's positive. That's a positive movement in favor of uh, maybe bolstering our our civic curiosity. That's really interesting. Yeah, and, and I can I, I definitely see some of that with what's going on right now with kids. Because yeah, you I mean even things like the maker movement and these different things where it's just encouraging kids to do things with their hands. And yeah, I think it's interesting to put a bow on all this. We talked to a lot here. You're you got your hands in a lot of different things, and uh, you are doing foresight. So I guess you know you you have to. Uh, get as much data as possible and you're pulling it all this together. But what are you working on next? Well, I mean, what's the, what's the big thing for you over the next year or two? What's, what, what are you thinking in, about and working on? I am laying out the blueprint for an AI chief innovation officer capability. And let me tell you the rationale for that. This is not to put anybody out of business. This is actually because there's some really interesting research that, for example, CB Insights has a state of, you know, their data company that has the state of innovation report check it out it's all available online the pdf it's in it's a, a survey of american companies and there's other re- pieces of research that corroborate this that about 80 percent of american businesses don't have any innovation function and largely because it's perceived as don't know how too expensive not sure like they just don't have the skills they don't have the leader they don't have the ability to set up an innovation function. And that makes me a little sad because I think that everyone could benefit from having access to some kind of skills that would help them problem solve, explore, and innovate. And I think the world would be a good place if there was more of that happening, whether it's at the individual level or at the corporate level. So I'm interested in SMEs and the smaller businesses that, you know, Clearly, like the Fortune 500 all have, you know, they have innovation functions, not all of them, but they have a lot of them do. And, you know, what about like the majority of the rest of the businesses out there, you know, you're, and so if there's a way to not automate, and this is not about autonomous humans, this is about providing skills and guidance and frameworks 
and helping to also explain data, how to give people who may be not so data savvy some simple tools and tricks and tips and platforms to be able to do some basic data analysis and triangulation to help them with their innovation. So I, I feel like there's a barrier in this space. I think the data is daunting, especially to SMEs who might not have fluency and don't have the teams that directly connects with innovation. So anyone who wants to build a CIO, an AI CIO with me, let me know <laughs> because I'm <laughs> working up the, the crazy blueprints right now. <laughs> I think that sounds fascinating. And I think that's, that's like one particular example of what's going on overall is that there's just not enough data scientists and AI experts and machine learning experts to go around. And at some point, the, the point is about a really just enabling a wider swath of industry to be able to take advantage of that without having to be, you know, experts in all these things. I think that's a that's pretty worthy goal. And another thing, I mean, look, the chief innovation officer, CIO, I don't think it's a it's a happenstance that it's often the same acronym for chief information officer because innovation requires information. And so they're not to say that they're interchangeable roles, but the need for data and information and exploration, I emphasize the exploration to fuel innovation is core to innovation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This was a fascinating discussion, Sarah. I really, I really enjoyed walking through this with you. You do, you do very interesting things. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure. Help me become a master of data. <laughs> I'll do my best. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, sir. Okay. Bye-bye. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.